welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Well, uh, if you are following the Christian calendar, you recognize that today is the celebration of the Epiphany. I'm kind of glad that the calendar worked out so that it was on a Sunday morning this year. Uh, That's kind of cool. We've had a lot of church lately, and we can kind of just take it easy this week, not have to add another service. But on this day, we rejoice on the day of the Epiphany. We rejoice that God is not just the God of the insiders, not just the God of the faithful, believing community, but the God of outsiders too. In other words, God did not just reveal himself to the Blessed Virgin Mary or to Joseph or to those Jewish shepherds abiding in their fields by night or to faithful Anna in the temple, the prophetess, or to Simeon who was waiting in the temple for the revelation of God's Messiah all those years. He didn't just reveal himself to them. No, God reveals himself In fact, God offers himself to outside, unclean Gentiles like us, like us. The Magi, the scholars from the East were men from a completely different religion. Uh, There's some uh, scholarly debate. Did they just come from Arabia? Were they Nabataeans? Which if they were Nabataeans, uh, this is inside baseball, they would know that Herod, who was descended from Nabataeans, was a bad guy, and they would have not gone to him, so they're not Nabataeans. Or were they Persians? I think they were probably Persians, because we know about a cast of people there, scholars called Magi. They were from a different religion, Zoroastrianism, but they had devoted themselves to the best science of the day and the sincere desire to know the truth. And God, in His exuberant mercy... In his lavish seeking, God, in his lavish seeking love, sought these seekers. God, in his lavish seeking love, sought these seekers. Now, the really cool thing here is that the event of the Magi coming to worship Israel's king, which we heard Deacon Ann read about in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, was actually multiple times foretold. We heard it, some of it, of the foretelling in Psalm 72, which we offered in worship this morning. But we also see it very clearly here in Isaiah chapter 60, that, that passage we just read from the Old Testament, Cornell read for us. And that was foretold some 700 years, 700 years prior to the actual Magi coming to Bethlehem. We heard that foretelling. But even more than the event being foretold, in Isaiah chapter 60, the meaning of the event, the meaning of the event is revealed by the prophet. So what we're going to do this morning is let's settle into Isaiah 60. We're going to use some other scriptures as well. So, you know, get ready for Bible drill in just a minute. But let's settle into Isaiah 60 and see the meaning of what we celebrate on Epiphany. And the first thing that we are struck with, if you will open to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, 
the first thing that we are struck with in this passage is the contrast between light and darkness. In Isaiah 60, verse 1, it begins with this triumphant phrase. Listen to what Isaiah 60, verse 1 says. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. There is, there is joy, there's exaltation, there's elation at the coming of this light. The coming of this light brings rejoicing. Now, you know, I had the joy of the light returning just yesterday morning. After weeks upon weeks of endless rain and cloudy, cloudy days, we got up and sunlight was pouring through the windows from a cloudless sky. It happened again this morning. Now, it may cloud up again. But this morning, it was sun was shining again. And Lisa and I talked about how we were, we were made joyful just by plain old sunlight. I mean, there were smiles on our faces. There was joy in our heart just because the sun was shining, just because of the light. You know, light has the power to make us joyful. And why does it? I mean, why all this rejoicing over light? Well, just look at uh, Isaiah chapter 6. You go to verse 2 and look at that with me. For behold, Isaiah 60, verse 2, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. In other words, when you have been in darkness, with the light comes the joy. When you have been in the darkness, with the light comes the joy. You know, think about it. In, in merely a natural sense, you're probably aware that there are something, there's actually a, a disorder called SAD, S-A-D, Seasonal Affective Disorder. And more than 3 million people in the United States alone get depressed by the long nights of winter darkness and are able to find joy again, finally, when they are exposed to sufficient sunlight or one of those expensive lamps you can buy and put in your house. You know, one of the things I have noticed as I've gotten older is I do notice just how dark it is for so long during the winter. I don't think I noticed it as much as a kid, but I really notice it now. It's probably caused by global warming. I'm not sure, but I'm <laughs> just being facetious. But the biblical sense of darkness, listen, that's the natural sense. And we can see how darkness can bring depression and dissolution. But the biblical sense of darkness is a metaphor, listen, for a life lived apart from the presence of God. The biblical sense of darkness is a life lived apart from the presence of God. So in verse 1, when it says, your light has come, it's used in parallel with the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. In other words, God's kavod, God's glory, God's presence is their light. So the darkness is living apart from God's presence. Did we get that syllogism that was contained in that? And the good news is that God, listen, this is so cool. God sovereignly and gracious, graciously chooses to remedy our darkness. God takes the initiative, initiative to remedy this darkness. His light God's very presence does indeed come. His glory does rise, and it comes in the person of the child of Bethlehem, Jesus Christ. 
And if there was any doubt, listen, this is so cool. Get ready to flip over to chapter, uh, chapter 8 in the book of John, in, in the gospel of John. If there was any doubt about Jesus being the light, just look with me at John 8, verse 12. Now, I'm cheating because I've already got these scriptures written down. So I'll give you a moment to turn there. John chapter 8, verse 12. <clears throat> and listen to any, any uh, doubt about who the light is being cleared up. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness because you're in the presence of God, right? But we'll, but we'll have the light of life. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the light of the world came into the world in Bethlehem, and that is what we are celebrating today at Epiphany. And that's just wonderful. That's just terrific. That's grand. I'm so glad. But one of the things that I have been struck with lately is how many self-identified, enlightened Western people today are still walking around in darkness. Astonishingly, many choose darkness even though the light has come. Now, we certainly see someone choosing the darkness rather than coming to God's light in the person of King Herod in Matthew chapter 2. Because of his overriding passion for earthly power, we know a little bit about, actually we know quite a bit about King Herod. He was a very uh, ruthless uh, ruler and willing to take the lives even of his sons in order to stay in power. And because of his overriding passion for earthly power, Herod has no intention of coming to the light of God's presence. In spite of what he told those wise men, oh, when you find that child, come and tell me all about him so that I may too go and worship him. Uh-uh. He is not going to go and worship the competition. That is not in his plans. In fact, in the very next verse that comes after what we heard this morning, the angel of the Lord warns Joseph in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Many of us still have the desire to destroy the light in order to remain in our own darkness. The spirit of Herod is still at work in the world. Now, would you permit me the privilege of making an observation at this point? Can I go on a little excursus, a little side note here? Can I go from preaching to meddling? Don't say no, please. <laughs> One of the ways that I see this darkness manifest in our current cultural moment is that so many of us have lost whatever capacity we ever had for self-awareness, to recognize our own inconsistencies and our own hypocrisies. In fact, that's kind of the definition of hypocrisy, isn't it? You don't realize you're being a hypocrite usually. As I've said before, uh, it, hypocrisy is like a comb over. It doesn't fool anybody, but it makes you feel better. And you can ask me because I know about comb overs. 
No, we are just blind to our lack of consistency and our hypocrisy. And let me give you what I think is a presenting example. I see this a lot right now in our moment. Have you ever noticed, or have you noticed, that those who are quickest to call those with whom they disagree, disagree to call those people haters, but yet they themselves are filled with rage and hatred? Just witness the vileness and the violence of the words they use. They are at least as hateful as those they oppose, but their self-awareness has been darkened. They can't see it. They're blind. Instead, they view themselves as compassionate and virtuous and righteous, while at the same time acting as if those who hold a different view must be destroyed. That is just one example of being shrouded by deep darkness. In this dark cultural moment, historian Richard Hofstadter reminds us, he actually was writing way back in 1968, he was writing about the mood of this country immediately prior to the American Civil War in the 1860s. Historian Richard Hofstetter spoke of the ability in society to disagree without seeking the destruction of the other, to disagree without seeking the destruction of the other as comity, not comedy, comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y. Comity exists in a society, he writes, when one party or interest seeks the defeat of an opposing interest on matters of policy, but at the same time seeks to avoid, listen, crushing the opposition, denying the legitimacy of its existence or its values, or inflicting upon it extreme and gratuitous humiliations beyond the substance of the gains that are being sought. Comity is present when the basic humanity of the opposition is not forgotten, Civility is not abandoned. It is the sense that a community life must be carried on after the acerbic issues of the moment have been fought over and won. And when you lose that, you are walking in darkness. And by the way, if you find yourself talking a lot about haters or bigots or idiots, could I, I just want to humbly encourage you to take a look into your own heart and examine how you are feeling about those people at that moment, would you characterize your attitude in that moment as one of love and grace or of rage and, dare I say it, hatred? Is it possible that you are doing exactly the same thing you condemn in others? But I digress. Here is the bottom line. The farther away I move from the presence of the child of Bethlehem, the farther away that I move from that manger, the farther I get from that babe, the farther away I go away from the young child, the paideia that is there in the house in Bethlehem we read about this morning, the farther I retreat from him, the further I plunge into darkness." The farther away I go from the light, by necessity, the farther I plunge into darkness. The farther I retreat from the source of truth, from the one who is the truth, 
the deeper I stumble into the night of self-deception and error. I lose the very capacity to see, to acknowledge, and to embrace truth. I don't have the ability to do it because if you deny the truth, the very source of truth, the radiant brilliance of the truth, you are by nature and by necessity doomed to walk in error. There's no middle ground. Now, why would anybody do that? Why would anyone choose the darkness? Why would anyone love the darkness? I mean, why be Herod instead of a Magi? Or is it a Magus? I don't know. Well, go with me to a very familiar passage. I told you we'd be reading the Bible this morning. Go to John chapter 3. It's probably dog-eared in your Bible. John chapter 3, verse 17 and then we'll go to from 17 and we'll skip 18. We could read it, but we're just for the sake of time going to go straight to 19 and 20. John 3, 17, Jesus said, for God did not send his son, God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then listen to what Jesus says in verse 19. And this is the judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. We love, we love our tribal hatreds. We love our tribal hatreds. I never feel my identity so clearly as when I'm hating that other tribe. We love our greed. We love our rebellion. We love our lust and our sexual autonomy. We love our wicked deeds and choosing to remain in the darkness of our love of evil is itself the very definition of judgment. Judgment is, by the very nature of the moral universe that God has ordained, the judgment is to live apart from the presence of God, to choose darkness is to live under judgment. To live apart from the presence of God, to choose the darkness is actually to be under judgment. But the entire reason we're celebrating today is that God goes out of his way to shine into our darkness, to not leave us in that dark, dark place. You know, we read the passage from Isaiah chapter 9 on Christmas Eve. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And we are those people. What the coming of the wise men from the east demonstrates this. It demonstrates that God will use whatever means available, even unusual means, even means we probably don't even agree with, to draw true seekers to himself, to shine into our darkness. The wise men operated with the best science of their day, For them, the line between astronomy and astrology was blurred at best. 
but they were genuinely seeking to know the truth. And God used that, that Gentile worldly desire for genuine truth and used a planetary conjunction or a supernova or something we cannot even conceive of to reach out to those truth seekers. I mean, think about it. God was willing to move the heavens around in order to reach those who were living in great darkness. What won't he do? Well, actually, he'll go further than that. Jesus, is, Jesus, God's light is for everyone. God invites the other, the Gentile, the foreigner, to become a part of the community of faith and love and worship. God revealed himself in order to make outsiders insiders. God revealed himself in order to make outsiders insiders. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, the light of the world shows that he is willing at least in the eyes of the world, to be made a fool of. Jesus was willing to make a fool of himself in the eyes of the world in order to shine his light on us. You know, that's what the incarnation is. That's what God putting on human flesh is. It is a shocking, offensive, even foolish display of the Almighty God being willing to get into the gutter in order to rescue the likes of us outsiders, us Gentiles, us lost, rebellious people. And God will use weird ways of doing that. Years ago, Lisa and I were visiting with some friends. I think they were. it was Don and Cheryl Rasmussen who told me this. Uh, but they told us of a friend of theirs from India, and he was a member, his family was, were members of the Brahmin caste, the highest caste in Indian society. And his parents desired to send him to the United Kingdom uh, for the best possible education. They were a little concerned, though, that their son desired to study art instead of medicine or engineering, but eventually they relented. And a part of this young man's Brahmin worldview was that wealth was in some way equated with godliness. In other words, the closer to the God, the greater the material blessing. I think some people still have that worldview. This was coupled also with an appreciation for diligence and self-discipline and moral behavior. That was all a part of his worldview. But when he arrived... In the UK, he assumed that the wealthy, educated students he would be spending his university career would, with would uh, share those same attributes as he did. But nothing could have been farther from the truth. He was shocked at the immoral and degenerate behavior of his classmates. And as a result, he found his worldview challenged. This is not how things were so, supposed to be. He was in that frame of mind when he was required to paint a landscape for a college assignment. As he composed his work, one of the things that struck him, in fact, the main thing that struck him was how everything he viewed fit together. Everything he was looking at fit together. In his tradition, there were literally thousands of gods who controlled very specific events or objects. And each of these gods was constantly vying for supremacy. He thought to himself that they could never cooperate long enough to bring such order and harmony and beauty into being. 
he began to see that there was a single designing hand behind what he observed. There was one creator at work, and he got it by moving from India to the UK with his current worldview and going to an art class with a bunch of other art students who in no way reinforced his his existing worldview and then painting a picture, all of a sudden he had an epiphany. He began to hunger to find the truth about this one creator God. And as he passed a church one day, he noticed a man sweeping the steps of the building. And he approached this man and he asked him, please, sir, because this happens all the time. Please, sir, could you tell me about God? Well, the fellow sweeping the steps happened to be the rector of the church. And beginning at that point, he told the young Brahmin the gospel of Jesus Christ. He shared the good news of God's light coming into the world as a child growing up to be our Savior, dying on a cross and rising from the grave. This young art student had an epiphany, and just like the Magi from the East, he had sought the truth, and his journey ended where theirs did. He found Jesus Christ. And hearing the good news, he fell down before Jesus and offered him his most precious gift, his very life, and he became a disciple. With this young man, with the Magi, may we come out of our darkness and into the light of God's presence. God grant us an epiphany today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 